At the end of the day, I do think this question is hard to answer in general terms. Like it depends on what your life looks like, how much time you have to study and how much time you need to study. So I wouldn't feel bad about yourself if you know, you're not hitting some goal set by three people on a clubhouse stage. Study until you feel like you can't study anymore or you can't improve anymore. Hello and welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. I'm JY Ping, and on today's episode, Emissions Consultants Tahira McCoy, Christy Belknap, and David Busis host a Clubhouse talk about creating a law school application timeline. Tahira moderates the panel, asking everyone to share their insights on when to take the LSAT, approaching professors for letters of recommendation, brainstorming personal statements, strategizing school lists, and when to apply early decision. The talk also includes Q&A with the live audience. So without further ado, please enjoy. Good evening and welcome everyone. I'm Tahira McCoy. Feel free to call me Taj. I'm a professional writer and law school admissions and administration professional. For 10 years, I worked in law school admissions at four law schools spanning public and private institutions, including two Jesuit schools, a T14 school, and an HBCU. Most recently, I served as the director of admissions and scholarship programs at Berkeley Law. Currently, I am the director of career services at the University of San Francisco School of Law, and I'm an admissions consultant for Seven Sage. Tonight, we have a fun conversation planned for you. We will be talking about preparing to apply to law school. My panelists and I represent Seven Sage. Seven Sage offers LSAT preparation, admissions consulting, and editing services. If you visit our website, sevensage.com, you can create a free account, which gives you access to some sample lessons, an LSAT prep test, and 100 question explanations. The free account also gives you access to our discussion forum, where you can ask questions about the admissions process from others who are currently in the process and learn about other events we have coming up. The three of us that are on the panel are admissions consultants, and Christy and I have worked on admissions teams at various law schools across the country. We're going to be speaking with you tonight about creating a law school application timeline. So this talk is really for law school candidates preparing to apply to law school for fall 22 or later. There will be time for a question and answer for the last 10 to 15 minutes or so of our conversation. So let's go ahead and get started. To my panelists, I'm going to ask that one at a time you please introduce yourselves, share what school admissions teams you've served on or what experience you have, and then we'll be able to move on to questions. And so Christy, I'm going to start with you. Hi, everyone. My name is Christy Belknap. I practiced law in New York City for 12 years. And for two of those years, I worked in the admissions office at Cardozo Law School as an associate director of admissions. And I'm happy to be here tonight. Hey, everyone. My name is David. I was just thinking of this great Raymond Chandler quote. I feel about as inconspicuous as a tarantula on a piece of angel food cake because I have not worked in law school admissions. I have worked at Seven Sage Admissions. I'm a partner there. I started it. So I guess you can credit me for hiring Tahira and Christy. And I see some other Seven Sage consultants with lots of experience in the audience. But I have been doing interviews and researching the law school admissions process for a couple years. I have spoken to many different deans at many different schools, and I'm really happy to be here. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. 
In creating a timeline for preparing to submit law school applications, several topics come to mind, including when to take the LSAT, approaching professors for letters of recommendation, when to start brainstorming for personal statements, strategizing a school list, reviewing application instructions, and the infamous early decision versus regular pool. And so jumping into this first question, and I'll start with you, David, how much time would you say someone should plan to study for the LSAT? Yeah, it depends. So, you know, if you're like Rain Man and this stuff just comes really, really naturally to you, you may not need much time at all. But in my experience, almost everybody, even really smart people, people who are really, really good at standardized tests, tend to need at least six months to really hit their potential. And that might strike some of you as odd because I think the number that is in at least a lot of people's heads is three months. And the reason that three months might be in your head is that other LSAT test prep companies have three-month courses. But I have news for you. They don't have three-month courses because three months is like the optimal amount of time to study for the LSAT. They have three-month courses because it means they can fit an extra course in every year. And that also used to fit better with the LSAT schedule. I can speak from personal experience. It did take me six months to get a good score, a score that I felt was representative. And it was really frustrating. So if you're like at the four month mark or the five month mark and you're still not getting the score you think that you ought to be getting, just hang in there. I, I feel like it really didn't come together for me personally until maybe two or three weeks before the test. A lot of people study longer than that. So I don't necessarily recommend it or think you need to, but there are certainly people who study for a year or even longer. Although at that point, I would worry about running out of test prep material. Christy, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, just to add to that, I think the thing is, is that I'm assuming you probably will not just be studying for the LSAT. Like you have other things going on. You know, you may be in school still. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good idea to keep working as long as you can, you know, put in the time to also study. I guess it depends on your job. But one thing that I think applicants, when they start to apply, they may realize that, you know, a law school doesn't necessarily want to see that you dropped everything and only focused on studying for the LSAT. That might be seen as a little bit of a negative, like you can't multitask, which lawyers are required to do all the time. So I would say, you know, give yourself that amount of time, you know, I think David's advice is good, six months, because you're not just going to be eating, breathing, studying for the LSAT, that's it. You know, you're, you're probably going to be doing a few other things as well. Yeah, but at the end of the day, I do think this question is hard to answer in general terms. Like, it depends on what your life looks like, how much time you have to study, and how much time you need to study. So I wouldn't feel bad about yourself if, you know, you're not hitting some goal set by three people on a clubhouse stage. Study until you feel like you can't study anymore or you can't improve anymore. I 100% agree with that. And I will say for most of the questions that are going to be asked tonight, the answer will certainly be it depends. And then we can talk about some caveats. This next one, though, I feel like in most instances has kind of absolute <laughs> responses to it. Is there any instance where either of you feel like it's a good idea to take the LSAT without any preparation? I do, yes. I think it's a good idea to take the LSAT without any preparation if you're taking the free 
test provided by LSAC and you're not signing up for an official test. Otherwise, that's a hard no. I 100% agree with that. You know, it can only lead to either, you know, either you're going to be scoring in the same, I doubt this happens where you take the test cold and then you get the same score when you study, you know, to the max that you can. Usually it's when you take the test totally cold, you know, you get your lowest score. And then if you are able to improve your score, great, but you might have to then, you know, explain that in an addendum. So it kind of creates more work for you. And, you know, what's your excuse? I was just not taking it seriously or, you know, so it's not like a good situation to be in. And I don't think this is quite what you were getting at, Tahira, but a lot of people do take a cold test as a diagnostic. This is, of course, not an official administration. They just take it for themselves. I will say that, like, I'm not even sure about the utility of that. It's very useful for test prep companies, including, you know, a HEM 7 Sage, because it lets us say things like we can boast an average of a, you know, 400 point improvement. And that's because everybody improves dramatically. The LSAT is just not a test that is designed to be administered to people who have never looked at it. In some ways, it's a test of how effectively you can study. That was the exact piece I was looking for, actually. So Christy, let me ask you, how would you say in your experience, the schools that you've worked for, how, how do you look at multiple scores? So law schools will see all of your scores, but they will only you know, quote unquote, count your highest score, because it's the one that the schools report to US News and World Report. So it's the one that matters for the school's ranking purposes. Great. Thank you. You know, when it comes to multiple scores, there does come a point, especially depending on how many times a student has taken the exam, where a school will start to wonder against the spread of all of these scores, which one really reflects a student's abilities. And so at some point, it becomes really difficult to say, okay, well, the most recent score or the highest score is is that valued score if you have six scores or something like that, right? And so you want to make sure that when you're going into this exam, first of all, that you're really confident in the answers that you're giving, that you're not second guessing yourself, but also that you're actually really ready. I've been talking to one client in particular and and just kind of guiding them on this. If you don't feel ready to take it, you can work with LSAC and, and by certain deadline dates postpone to take it at another time. It is worth it if you can come away with that really strong score right out of the gate and don't have to take it again. Retaking can cause some stress and it can cause people to second guess themselves as they're going in there with these questions. And so I always believe that, you know, if you go in with and you're really ready, that does help your chances. And as long as you're really confident in the preparation that you've put in, I think that you're going to have a really strong showing. One of the things that you should know is as a law school admissions officer, the rubric sheet that we're given shows us the standard deviation of scores and basically tells us, you know, within two to three points above and below that score is is the spread where someone under similar circumstances would continue to land. So if you're only going to improve by about two points, understand that we already knew that you were capable of that based on the rubric that we're given. 
And so when thinking about, should I retake? Is this something that's really going to help me? If you can get beyond the deviation of three points and you're really confident that you can do that, then I would say go for it. But you want to really think about how is that score going to help me? And is the school going to see it as a, a big difference? David, did you want to add something? Yeah, I think it is also helpful to step back and think about the ostensible purpose of the LSAT. And it is also the real purpose. The LSAT is a predictor of your success, of your grades, actually, in your 1L year. And we know from studies that the LSAT is correlated to 1L grades, so it's predictive. Your LSAT plus your GPA is more correlated to your 1L grades than your highest LSAT score and your GPA alone. But as it turns out, your average LSAT score plus your GPA is even more correlated to your 1L grades than your top LSAT score and your GPA alone. And so at least when it comes to what the LSAT is supposed to be doing, which is predicting how well you're going to do in your 1L year, all of your LSAT scores together give more information than your top score alone. Now, that said, one of the unofficial purposes of the LSAT is to, I mean, you can think of it as boosting a school's ranking or, you know, maintaining their rankings. I don't know if it's really their purpose, but in any case, they have to report it to the ABA and they only have to report the top score. I guess they don't quite report a score, right? They, they report a median and they only have to use the top score to calculate their median, which is what they report. And so in that sense, I think you can think of your top score as What's the, what's, what's the uh, opposite of a soft factor? You can think of the top score, I hate to say this, as like a hard factor. That's like the number that matters most. But I think all of your scores together are a soft factor. They also matter, just like many other things matter a lot. Maybe not as much as like your top LSAT score alone and your GPA, but you know your background matters, your experience matters, the quality of your essays matter. The number of your LSAT scores also matter, and it probably matters more the more you have. When and how should a candidate approach professors for letters of recommendation? I mean, I think that if you know you want to apply to law school or really any graduate school while you're still in college, you should cultivate professors to use a kind of icky way to think about it. I mean, build a relationship with them, go to their office hours, try to, you know, make sure that they know you in the classroom and maybe a little bit out of the classroom because, of course, that's going to make them more inclined to write you a sparkling letter. Now, a lot of people find themselves out of college for four years, maybe in a job, and, and then they realize that they want to go to law school and they can't go back in time and cultivate their professors or go to their office hours. And so if that's the case, I would urge you to reach out to the professors as soon as possible. And you don't have to start with the ask, or you can start with a feeler. You can say something like, hey, you know, I'm thinking of asking you for a recommendation, but if you don't feel like you could write one or write a great one, I totally understand and I'll ask someone else. And I say that you should do that as soon as possible because professors are not always known for how quickly they reply to you. It might take a long time and you want to give them a lot of runway in case they poop out or they just drag their feet. The worst situation you can be in, I mean, not the worst, but a bad situation is to have everything ready to go and still be waiting on that recommendation from professor so-and-so. So bug them early, 
ask if they're willing to write a rec. Ask if they'll have a conversation with you about your goals. That's a chance for you to get a little more FaceTime with you and probably build a better recommendation and give them some information that's going to be relevant. And then, you know, you might want to send them a packet of work that you did in their class. Give them some specific points that they might want to mention. It's not the same thing as writing it for them, which is very presumptuous. You're just trying to make their life easier and try to make it easier for them to write a sparkling recommendation. But I don't think there is such thing as too early. I mean, I guess you can keep their schedule in mind. You may not want to do it while they're grading exams or whatever. But as soon as you know you want to apply, this is this is one of the first things you should be thinking about. I think it's wise to get out of the way anything that doesn't depend entirely on you. So get out of the way the recommendations. Send your transcripts in right away in case there's some sort of problem and you have to wrangle with LSAC. Do not leave that stuff to the last minute. Just depend on yourself. Don't depend on anyone else in this process. Thank you for that very complete answer. And to Christy, I will ask, if a student's been out of school for two years or more, do they still need to submit an academic letter? I would say yes. Law school admissions committees are looking for some understanding of how you perform in school. So having, even if it's been two years, even if it's been four years, you know, I would just reiterate what David said. You want to reach out to a professor, re-familiarize yourself with them, them with you by sending a packet. Maybe that includes your resume, maybe your personal statement, your transcripts. And, you know, have that conversation so there's a back and forth and they get to know you and also point out, you know, your high points, your work that you did in the class that you're proud of, that they liked at the time. So, yeah, I think the academic letter is really very important. And, you know, there are many schools that will say at least one academic letter of recommendation. So it may be a requirement of a law school. Great. And typically for those that do make it a requirement, they don't really give exceptions to that unless you're about five years out from having graduated undergrad. And so typically that requirement is going to stand. It can be a really difficult thing to have to go back to a school that you haven't been in touch with in a few years to to get a letter. And so if that is a situation that you're in now, I strongly recommend that you start reaching out to those professors, especially ones that you had more than once. There's a better chance that they remember you and your work. And oftentimes you can supply them with your resume and and have a conversation with them to really refresh their memory and give them a sense of what your trajectory has been. And that can help them in determining if they can give you a, a positive letter of recommendation. Okay. And so, David, if a student's applying to law schools this fall, when should they start working on their personal statement? It depends on your LSAT schedule. So the LSAT is the first priority. It matters more than anything you write. If you feel like you can study and work on your personal statement at the same time, great, more power to you. You know, maybe you have a lot of free time, but you can't devote it all to LSAT study because your brain is going to liquefy and you're going to scream. So if the personal statement is a nice break from that, go for it. Otherwise, I also think this is something that you should do on the early side. You want to give yourself room to write plenty of drafts and to send it out to readers 
who also may not be very punctual, but it is so important to get feedback. And I don't know, I would say count on at least six drafts and then build in the time that you need for you know people to take three, four days to get back to you when you send it to them. And then of course you also need to revise it before you send again. So that's a long way of saying that if you've already taken the LSAT or if you can work on it now, this is a good time to get started right now. I was going to say, you know, the summer before, depending if you're done with your LSAT, but you know, just as David said, the LSAT's the priority. But yeah, I would say, I mean, at least three months, just, you know, because I think you'll probably have other things going on <laughs> is a good time frame. Great. Thank you. Moving right along into law school applications in general, I'll posit this to either of you because I have a feeling you're going to have similar answers. How many schools should someone apply to? I mean, I like the nine to 10 just to get that well-balanced list, three targets, three safeties, three reaches, and maybe one for fun. <laughs> you know, many people do apply to more, particularly if they're able to get fee waivers from the school because, you know, applying to law school can get very expensive. But I, I like a nine to 10. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't think you have that much to lose after you apply to, you know, a bunch of safety targets and reaches. So I would say there's, I mean, there there are, by the way, I think, special situations. It, it's possible that it's rational for you only to want to apply to reaches. I don't advise that to most people, but I spoke, for example, to an international student yesterday who told me that he wasn't even sure he wanted to go to law school. If he did go, he would have to leave his home in Myanmar and he would be staying here for 10 years. It would be an enormous upheaval and the prospect just didn't even seem worth it to him if he couldn't get into a top school. And if you understand that by applying only to reaches, there is a very good chance that you're not going to get into any law school. And if you're okay with that, okay, I say you're an adult. You can make that decision. But for the vast, vast majority of applicants, if you just want to go to law school, of course you want to go to the best law school you can get into or the law school that's the best fit. Like You should be applying to at least three safeties, like Chrissy said, at least three targets and at least three reaches. And that's the lower limit. If you do that and you want to apply to more and you have the time to apply to more, I give you my blessing. Go ahead. You have nothing to lose. Excellent. And what would you both say are factors that someone should consider when they're putting together a list of schools that they should apply to? I think a big factor is if you know where you would like to practice after you graduate from law school. Location, location, location. So I think people become obsessed with the top 14 schools because that it does open up the ability to practice nationally, anywhere you want to go, perhaps. The thing is, is that there are so many other law schools that are strong regional schools so that if you know where you would like to be after you graduate, focus on the schools that are top in that region. I mean, just Cardozo as one example of that, it's ranked, you know, in the 50s nationally, but has a very strong reputation in New York City and a robust alumni network that makes getting a job, you know, much easier than perhaps coming from a higher nationally ranked school. So I think that is a big factor in 
creating your school list, understanding, you know, if you can, if you know where you want to practice after you graduate. Yeah, I agree. I'll also say, though, that it may just make sense to cast a wide net, see what happens, and then make the decision at your leisure after you apply, when you have time to research and hopefully this year to visit the schools. Great. I would add to that also, you know, as you're thinking about what factors to consider, if you think of them in terms of what your priorities are, whether it's location, whether it's scholarship money, whether it's alumni or programs or campus environment or faculty and their research or career opportunities, make that list for yourself and then make sure that you keep that list handy as you start to get decisions back from schools. If you're in a position where you have to choose between multiple offers, go back to that list that you wrote at the very beginning that has all of those priorities and make sure that you're choosing something based on one thing and not just what's being presented to you in the springtime because it can kind of alter your view when the main thing you're looking at in the spring is money and you kind of forget there were other factors at play when you decided to apply to certain schools. Christy, is it true that law school applications change each year? So in my experience, since I've been doing this for the past couple of years, they may change slightly, but not drastically. And I would agree with that. I've seen where you see little tweaks to things. Every once in a while, a school will add a new requirement, or maybe they decide to create a new program, like a new binding early decision program that will have some new kind of aspects to it. But you don't typically see a ton of changes in an application from year to year. David, did you want to add? Yeah, I was just going to say the only big changes that I can think of off the top of my head are Stanford, when was it? Two years ago, maybe? Added a supplemental essay question. And it's sort of in the Georgetown vein. I, I think of like Georgetown as the pathbreaker on this. The, the It's like the fun supplement. I guess Yale has always done it too. Although Yale's 250 has gotten a little bit less fun because now they're they seem to be a little more of a frowny face on quirky statements and, and, and seem to be looking a little bit more for academic statements. But Georgetown for years has been asking an optional question, which by the way, is totally not optional if you want to get into Georgetown. But an optional question, you pick one of a few and it's something like, give us your top 10 or you know, write page 253 of your autobiography. That was one of them a couple of years ago. I don't think that was on last year's. And then Stanford just added that. And Georgetown changes those optional questions. Uh, I think they've changed it for the last two years, although I can't quite remember. But that's the kind of thing that tends to change. It's not like suddenly a school is going to ask you to write six extra pages. Great. And so kind of following that, you know, what is the importance of making sure to read through those law school application instructions and, and how can I use those instructions to kind of plan my application strategy? Well, I think that, Tahira, you might totally disagree with me and Christy, <laughs> you also might totally disagree with me. I don't think you should at the beginning. Of course you need to. I'm not telling you not to read the application, <laughs> but I actually think like, it's a beautiful path to insanity to try to plan out every application before you start. So what I recommend to most people is that 
you write a sort of school agnostic personal statement. You tell the best story you can. You put it in what tends to be the sweet spot of many schools. So, you know, two to three double spaced pages, about 750 words, 900 at the outside, except for Berkeley. Tahira, you can talk about that. I know you guys liked people to send you novels, but <laughs> you just write a personal statement that tells your story. It should include a personal element and it should probably either pivot to or focus the whole time on why you want to go to law school. Um, so it illuminates your motivation. You do the same thing with a diversity statement. You'll write a diversity statement if you think that you have something else to say. If you have circumstances that you need to explain, you write the addenda, et cetera. And then when you're done, then you look at the applications and you say, hmm, how do I have to adjust these? Do I have to chop this personal statement down? Do I have to write an extra essay for this school? Maybe this school just doesn't want my diversity statement. Their diversity statement prompt doesn't seem to welcome the kind of essay that I wrote. But then you just handle them one at a time. Christy? I don't totally disagree with you, David. I think um, you apply to the schools that are on your initial list for whatever reason, based on the factors that, you know, your priorities. And then, you know, if you want to apply to more schools, you might look at the ones that are more straightforward, the application. So don't require a lot of extra writing statements. Some require a separate statement about why you want to go to that particular law school. Many do not. So you might, you know, just what's the harm? You know, it doesn't require a whole lot of extra work. And it's in a region that I would, you know, like to be in. So I may as well, you know, if you have the time, you have the money or you have a fee waiver, there's no harm in applying to another school. And you're totally right, David, you called me out. I would do a different approach. Maybe it's the Capricorn in me. I don't know. But I love a spreadsheet and I love to kind of plan things out and have my little checklist of things that I need to do. And so a lot of times as when I was applying to law school, what I did was I kind of went through all of the application instructions to see, okay, well, which schools kind of have similar documents that I can use across multiple schools and then which ones are the outliers. So I know kind of where all the different pieces need to go. I did work at Berkeley. And so, you know, Berkeley says, for personal statements, two to four pages. And on the website, they say preferably four. Do they mean that? Yes, they do. Will they ding you if it's three pages? No, they just like to see the extra effort. Will they ding you if it's a page and a half? Yes. And so just know that going in, especially when schools are kind of communicating instructions to you, they can be extremely important. And you never know which ones are going to be really important to a specific school or what goals they may have for the year. And so just kind of know going in that, you know, you, you may need to kind of cultivate different documents for a specific school that, that's asking questions or giving a prompt that's slightly different. And just be prepared for that. You don't have to do the crazy spreadsheet and task list like I do, but for me, it, it's my personality that just helps me. Okay, and so moving on, what would you say, Christy, are the pros and cons of applying early decision? Well, so the pros would be you're showing that you're interested in coming no matter what. So in most instances, you don't require a scholarship, though some schools will automatically give you a scholarship if you apply early and get in early. You know, so I think showing that high interest that you're coming, no matter what happens, may give you a small bump in your 
admission rate. But I don't think applying early necessarily, you know, makes up for numbers that are way off. You know, maybe for splitters who are pretty close to the medians. I think the negative is that, again, you can't count on getting a scholarship or you, you have much less negotiating power because you've applied early. Not always, but typically you're saying I'm coming no matter what. So that, I think, is the big downside. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple different paths to consider. So one is where the school that you really want to go to offers early decision. And that really simplifies matters because then you can just ask one question. If the school is not a school like Berkeley or Northwestern that offers automatic scholarships to ED admits, you just have to ask yourself, is it worth it to me essentially to pay for slightly better chances? Because that is what you're doing. That is actually how a lot of these schools use ED. They use ED to admit qualified applicants that they know are going to pay full boat. And then they have more money to try to bring in other applicants, maybe with higher numbers, maybe to raise their medians, maybe to just create you know, a better, stronger, more diverse class, whatever. It's, it's good for them if they can lock in people with some median supporting number, LSAT or GPA, who are going to pay. And that's a simple question. It may not be an easy question for you to answer, but like the terms are very clear. On the other hand, you know, there's this other way that people use ED, and I'm a little more skeptical of it. Sometimes people use ED in what we might call a more strategic way. So they'll say, maybe, I want to get into a T14 school. So I'm going to apply first to an ED program with an early deadline, like Columbia or NYU. And if I'm deferred in time, then I'll apply ED again, you know, to any school that still offers ED, Georgetown, Cornell, Cornell has an ED2 round, for example, Georgetown has a late ED deadline. And that's okay, I guess, if you're if your goal is only to get into a T14 school. And then there are finally the people who apply ED deliberately to a school that's not their first choice. And they might do that, for example, if say, you know, they have their heart set on Harvard, but they think that they might get into Georgetown, for example, ED. And so you decide to optimize a pretty good outcome at the cost of precluding the best outcome. And you know what? Like, if that's the decision you make, again, I feel like, okay, you're an adult. You're allowed to do that. It's not what I would do, though. Like, for most people, I would really just recommend applying ED, maybe, to your top choice school and not applying ED to that school if it's not your top choice and certainly not applying ED if you're counting on a lot of scholarship money. I think that's great. And speaking of strategy, if I believe that I have a perceived weakness in my application, should I apply early decision so that I'm committed to a specific school? Does that give me a better chance? I mean, we actually researched this a couple years ago. We took 600,000 results and we brought in a statistician and we looked at it. And what we concluded is that ED does help, but it helps much more if either your LSAT score or your GPA is above the median. It probably doesn't help at all if both of your numbers are below the median, or maybe it helps a little bit. And you probably don't need to apply ED if both of your numbers are above the median. I don't think anyone does that anyway. So, I mean, to hear this seems like a leading question. So maybe you know something I don't, maybe ED helps more if you have some weakness. I just think, you know, a weakness is a weakness and ED is in the assets 
side of the ledger. And it's going to help whether or not you have a weakness. It was totally a leading question. <laughs> um, I, I've seen kind of both sides. I've, I've seen schools where, you know, they're kind of looking with their ED class to kind of shore up the foundation of their credentials. So trying to make sure that their LSAT and GPA medians for the ED class are really strong so that they can take more chances when it comes to the regular pool. I've seen where, you know, sometimes in the ED class, given how many really strong candidates tend to apply to that, because you do see actually a lot of people above both medians apply to the ED programs because they are trying to really kind of show that commitment. If you let me in, I will come. So that does allow a school to then also take some chances. And so every once in a while, you will see somebody that's kind of below on both credentials get in through the ED program if the rest of their application is really strong. It always comes down to those famous two words, it depends, but each school is going to kind of operate their ED program differently. And over time, throughout the cycle, how they operate the program may change based on how their priorities and their goals change as communicated by their dean, by their university, etc. And so to close out before we get to our Q&A period, for both of you, if you have one piece of advice to provide a candidate preparing to apply to law school, what would it be? So for me, I would say applying to law school should include some level or maybe a lot, (laughs) a high level of introspection. So figuring out what your priorities are. You touched on this a little bit, Tahira, before you should figure out like what what is the most important thing for you that you get a job in public interest law that you you know practice in new york city at a big law firm why are you going to law school what is your end goal i think you really have to think about that before applying that's great advice christy i mean that helps your chances at getting into law school it also helps your life because we have worked with a couple applicants who have thought about that question and said the reason is non-existent. I don't think I want to go to law school. So it's definitely worth thinking about before you go through this process. I think beyond that, which is, like I said, really important advice, I would tell you to sprint the beginning and walk at the end because I, I see too many people who do the opposite. People take a lackadaisical approach, often because you take the LSAT and you want to give yourself a break and you're like, ah, essays, whatever. I've already taken the LSAT. I've climbed the mountain. I'm on the other side. The rest is easy. And so they take a while. And then at the end of the process, they're in a big rush to get everything in. And that is what leads to mistakes, really preventable mistakes, typos, uploading the wrong essay, etc. So I think you should sprint at the beginning. Like you're not done when you take the LSAT. You should just keep running. I mean, give yourself maybe a couple days off, but then just dive right into the applications, wrap them up as soon as you can. We know both from talking to admissions officers and from looking at the statistics that applying early in the cycle has a big and a surprising effect on your chances. But right before you're actually ready to apply, take a deep breath. It doesn't actually matter if you apply Tuesday or Wednesday or the next Monday. Just take a deep breath, give yourself the time and the space to ask yourself questions like, will this essay make me look like a jerk? Will it make me look insane? Did I proofread it enough? And the answer is always no. You have never proofread it enough. It's not possible to proofread enough. So just proofread it again, and then maybe one more time, and then finally apply. 
And I would close with my advice, which would be to make sure that, you know, throughout the admissions process that you are able to connect with and visit, whether virtually or actually in person, each campus that you apply to. Make sure that you're able to see what there is to offer there, how people communicate and interact with each other. Is it an environment where you feel like you can thrive? Because sometimes you really won't get that feeling until you step onto a campus or you speak to someone there and you get a sense of what the collegiality looks like, what the faculty-student interaction looks like, how people kind of go about their day. And those visits, you know, sometimes they take place, you know, during the fall because that's when recruitment season is happening. But sometimes they take place during the spring, during admitted student weekends. And so just make sure that you avail yourself of those opportunities because you want to make sure that it's it's something that really does fit you, your personality, your learning style and your needs more so than anything else. And so first, I would really love to thank my panelists. And now we're going to go ahead and move into a Q&A period. We've got about eight minutes left of our conversation today. If you have a question, please raise your hand. I'll bring people up one at a time so that we can address. Please just one question and one part question, not multi-part, so that we can get to as many people as possible. And so first, I'm going to be bringing up Olivia. Hi, thank you so much. This has been awesome. I'm a non-traditional student. I'm 32. I went back to school online to finish my bachelor's. And so when it comes to letters of recommendation, even though I will be graduating in fall 2021, I've never had FaceTime with these teachers. What would you recommend as a balance between my academic recommendations and then reaching out to people that I've worked with in the workforce for so long. Thank you. You should still reach out for academic recs, see if you can get them, but it would be totally understandable if you can't. If you can, it would be great if you could get one academic and one or two professional. Yeah, I was going to say something similar. I mean, if you can, even though the courses were online, I, I'm not sure how that works. Like if you emailed those professors separately would they and you gave them you know copies of your work did you ever attend office hours even if it's virtual you know as long as they know what your work product is in an academic setting i think that is worthwhile thank you so much thank you olivia and next i'm going to bring up jalen hello thank you for hosting this panel it's very helpful my name is jalen and I got out the military service last year, and I didn't work since then. I prepared the outside the whole time. So my question is, if I have a gap in my resume for almost like two years, should I expand, expand this gap in the addendum, or it's better not to touch this issue? Thank you. So I would say yes. I would I would explain it in addendum, and I imagine that you were not just studying for the LSAT for this two-year gap. You know. Anything that you can include that, you know, where you had personal growth, if you volunteered, if you traveled, that would be helpful. In some instances, law schools will require, if they see a gap of, say, six months or a year or more in a resume, they will require you to explain what you were doing. So I think it would be helpful to have an addendum in this case. But Jalen, did your period of unemployment coincide with the pandemic? Because you know, if so, this is 
pretty easy for you. You can you can just explain that it was it's not the ideal time to look for a job when you know businesses are closing down across the country. It's it's really like the perfect time to bunker down and get cozy with the LSAT. Right, right. It's not because of the pandemic, but it happened as a coincidence because I just you know my contract with the military is due, and after I got out of the military, the pandemic started. So you know. It's a coincidence. Right. And in that instance, it doesn't sound like an excuse. It's just a statement of what this world situation was. And so you, you know, explain the circumstances and you should be good. Okay. Thank you for your recommendation. Thank you. Thank you, Jalen. Okay. And so we are bringing up Helen. Hi there. First of all, thank you very much for everything, all the advice you guys have spoken about tonight. I was just wondering, how long would you say it would take to close the gap between your actual score and your blind review? Because I just signed up for Seven Sage, and I have an 11-point gap. So I'm definitely even just watching the explanations well on my way to, like, studying and stuff but I was just wondering how long you guys think from personal experience that journey may take Helen I I hate to say it but I think it just depends it depends how long you've been studying it depends on the quality of your studying and it depends how well you you do under pressure I don't think anybody can tell you that you'll be able to close an 11 point gap and you know, 11 months or, or, or five months or whatever. I think that it just depends on like how close you are to the beginning of your journey. If, if you just started studying, it's probably going to take a long time. If you've been, you know, already studying for a year, I don't know, you may not be able to close that gap. I don't, I don't want to, I believe in you, but you know, the LSAT is a test that by design is very fast. I don't think I would ever do as well under timed conditions as I would under untimed conditions. Thank you. I did just start studying, so it is definitely promising, but I appreciate that advice. Thanks. Yeah, you're going to do great. If you're getting 11 points higher on the blind review, I think the way to think of it is just that you understand the material and that like your potential is at least 11 points higher than it is right now. And your, you know, your blind review score might get even higher if you just started studying. Right. Okay. Thank you so much, David. I appreciate that. Thank you, Helen. And then we have Bridget. Hello, thank you so much for hosting this panel and good evening. My questions regards to letter of recommendations. If I ask one of my professors for a letter of rec for this fall admission cycle, but for example in October, see that my LSAT score is not where I would like it to be at, and I wish to delay my application until next year to improve that score, will that professor need to rewrite the letter and therefore, should I wait until I receive my October score and until I know for sure what I'm going to apply? Or should I get it now anyway? And would I be able to use that same letter for next year? Thank you. I think your best bet would be to get it now. And if you end up not applying this cycle and you apply next cycle another, or you know the one after that, you can always go back to your professor he or she may not have to rewrite the whole thing, depending on what has changed in your circumstances, you know, or your job or whatever. You can just ask them to redate the letter. Okay, great. Thank you so much. So if you think there's a possibility that you would be applying this cycle, then I would say yes. Go ahead and request now. 
Okay, I'm going to move on to the next person, and that's Anthony Kim. Yes, hi. Thank you all for this conversation. It was very helpful. So my question is, I am in graduate school. I'm thinking of asking a graduate professor for a letter of recommendation. Mm -hmm. Do you advise against asking a graduate professor, or would a letter of recommendation be better from an undergraduate professor? I don't see the harm in in asking a graduate professor for a letter of recommendation, depending on the schools that you're applying to and, and how many academic letters they expect. I've seen some candidates apply with an undergrad letter, a graduate letter, and a professional letter. It just depends on on what you can include. If you have an undergrad professor who is willing to write you a letter as well, I think you know having two academic letters is is great. The preference from law schools is always going to be for academic letters because it is a school setting and they're trying to picture you within their classes. Most law schools within their committees have faculty members on the committee that's reviewing. And so if, if they happen to see your application, you know, faculty respects faculty. And so they're, they're going to want to see those academic letters when possible. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Anthony. And so with that, thank you all so much for joining us this evening. It's been such a pleasure to host this room and and see so many faces in here. Understand that we will be having another event in the next few weeks. The next topic is going to be creating a cohesive application and package, including resumes and optional statements. And so I hope you'll join us for that discussion. Keep a lookout for Club 7 Sage updates for events on the calendar. If you have questions in the meantime, please hop over to sevensage.com and jump into the forum and, and ask questions. And so again, thank you so much to David and to Christy for joining us and for the other seven sagers in the audience. And we will see you next time. Thank you, Tahira. Good luck, everyone. Thank you. Hi, it's JY again. Thank you for listening. As always, if you're studying for the LSAT, applying to law school, studying for your law school exams, or studying for the bar, come visit us at sevenstage.com. We can help. That's it for this episode. Take care of yourself and see you next time.